I don't know if I would say that the um, the perception of religious people is going to improve because that perception is often privy to the most extreme voices. Welcome to Canon Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin. And today we have with us Dr. Reza Aslan, best-selling author, public intellectual, and a religious studies scholar. So what factors might be overwhelming or negating the outreach efforts to simply get religious studies content and civilizational pedagogy about world religions in school curriculums? Again, not theological content. And what solutions would you suggest? Well, first of all, it might come as somewhat of a shock to learn that it has only been in the last 50 or 60 years that public universities have been able to teach religion as an objective academic discipline, separate from theology, for instance. Um, For the same reasons, we don't teach religion in uh, public high schools or elementary schools, because in the United States, it has become very difficult to separate religious faith and religious belief from religion as a uh, scientific discipline, as a discipline that involves historical, literary, anthropological, sociological um, trends. Um, obviously, religion, not just in America, but in most parts of the world, is a very touchy subject. Um, when we talk about religion, what we are talking about most often is not so much beliefs and practices, but identity. And so, particularly in a country like the United States, that is 70% Christian, there is a great fear among conservative Christian groups that teaching, for instance, Christianity in an objective manner is somehow um, contrary to uh, the embedded truths of Christianity, that doing so would treat Christianity like a religion I'm sorry, that it would treat Christianity as a religion like any other religion, a thing to be studied instead of a truth to hold dear. And at the same time, there is an enormous amount of fear that that kind of teaching can very easily lead to proselytizing. Again, this is primarily a Christian fear. It's one thing to allow students to learn about Christianity, even in an objective historical way, it's something else entirely to then have them learn about Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism. Again, as though those religions are somehow equal to Christianity. And that has kept conversations about promoting religious literacy um, at bay in the United States. And that, I think, is disastrous. The fact of the matter is that people around the world are becoming more religious, not less religious. 
the more globalization begins to deteriorate our national identities, the more religious identities are beginning to step into the vacuum and become a, a greater force in how uh, communities around the world are identifying themselves. And so regardless of what profession you want to go into, it is very important to have some basic knowledge about the religions of the world, if for no other reason than to be able to navigate um, the, the world in which we live in, uh, a world in which, as I say, religious identities are on the rise. So how do we move forward? What solutions would you suggest for this issue? It's, it's, it's a non-starter in our political environment to try to introduce the study of religion in public schools. It's a non-starter. Uh, you know, as much as I would advocate for that to happen, I just don't see how it would. And so we have to rely on other means of doing so, um, extracurricular um, classes. Um, I myself am starting something with my wife next year um, meant to provide the materials necessary for parents to uh, educate their kids in religious literacy without proselytizing, without necessarily uh, getting mired in theology and creed, but just simply knowing more about the religions of the world. But I just don't see it happening uh, in a public school environment, certainly not in the political uh, context that we live in now. So moving along, in the in the past decade, especially Muslims have engaged in robust outreach initiatives to help correct the perception of Islam in the West. You often mention one solution to transform the negative perception is through popular culture, stories, movie, TV, fiction, art, etc. However, if as a barometer of success of these outreach efforts, we use the portrayal of Islam in, say, a Hollywood movies, perhaps even in prevalent television shows, or in the overall popular culture, it would seem little progress has been made. So once again, what factors might be overwhelming or negating progress in this area? Could it be political rhetoric, media bias, violent quote-unquote radical Islam, a lack of long-term education about Islam, perhaps a combination or even other forces are at play? Well, I would first disagree that no uh, progress is being made. I mean, progress is slow. But the fact of the matter is that the simple, comical demonization of Muslims and Muslim characters that was so prevalent in Hollywood films and in television shows have been dramatically reduced, I know, because I work in Hollywood. And I would say that there is now an enormous interest and a desire among filmmakers, among network executives, to integrate the stories of American Muslims into television shows. Um, you know, CW has, has a show now featuring a Muslim superhero. I have sold a number of television shows and pilot scripts uh, to networks and cable out outlets um, that feature 
Muslim characters or Muslim storylines. Um, just today, there was a press release that Bassem Youssef and Larry Wilmore have sold a, a show to ABC featuring Muslim characters and, and Muslim protagonists. So we are at that moment now in which the talent is meeting the desire. And I think what we're going to see in the next few years is an absolute explosion of stories, both in film and in television, that seek to present Muslims in a normal light, uh, not as just sort of simple antagonists, but as complex three-dimensional characters. And I would say that even further to that, what we are seeing now is an enormous success by um, uh, filmmakers uh, of Muslim backgrounds, whether we're talking about Riz Ahmed winning a uh, Emmy or whether it's Aziz Ansari winning an Emmy or Kumail Nanjiani hosting SNL. I mean, all of these things happen within the last few months. And if you had told me that, you know, that's what we were looking at, you know, 18 months ago, I would have been hard-pressed to agree with you. So there is an enormous amount of progress taking place, um, but it's slow. You know, this is a tricky industry. Um, they, It's built on, uh, you know, profits. <laughs> and, uh, and any industry that's built on profits takes an enormous amount of effort to get them to change direction, to change the way that they do work. But what I think we have been very successful in doing is convincing uh, execs and producers that there is a market for this kind of storytelling, that you can be successful telling stories about Muslims that, Muslims that cast them in not a positive light, but just a neutral light, in a three-dimensional light. And I still, to, to your larger question, by the way, and I still believe that that is the most powerful way to transform perceptions of Muslims in the United States. Look, if it is true that the key to changing the way that people think about an other is by giving them the opportunity to know that other, the fact of the matter is that Muslims are at a profound disadvantage because there's only three, three million, three and a half million of us. We're barely 1% of the population of the United States. It is very likely that you could be born, raised, and die in America without ever coming face to face with a Muslim. And so for the vast majority of Americans, the only Muslim they will ever come into contact with is the one they see on TV. And so we need to use that truth to our advantage to present them with Muslim characters that are real and true and three-dimensional. So any other advice you might provide to Muslims or other relevant organizations or groups to be more effective in doing that? Yes. I say this to every Muslim student group that I come across in my lectures across the country. The key to getting Americans to accept you as part of them is to stop being so focused inwardly and to instead focus your efforts, your attention on everyone else, 
on all the other marginalized communities in the United States. Every time I talk to a Muslim group, I always ask them what they're doing. And most of the efforts are about combating Islamophobia, which is important. It's about um, uh, teaching and educating people about Islam. That's important. It's about um, helping uh, persecuted groups like Palestinians or the Rohingya. That's very important. But you know what else is important? Uh, poverty in America, environmental concerns, um, LGBT rights, the fact that, you know, young African American men are being systematically murdered by policemen in this country. These are not quote unquote Muslim issues, but they're American issues. And we have to learn to take on the the plight of every other persecuted and marginalized community in the United States as our own and to fight for them if we want them to fight for us. And also because it's what you're supposed to do. It's what your faith demands. Switching gears now, I'm a bit curious about your worldview. You've often said on various occasions that the foundation of democracy is in secularism, but that the foundation of democracy is pluralism. Can you explain what you mean and how do you define pluralism in this context? First of all, let's define secularism because I think that's a misunderstood term. Secularism is an ideology that promotes the removal of religion from the public sphere. We are not a secular country in the United States. On the contrary, we are a profoundly religious, devoutly religious country. We don't have a quote-unquote separation between church and state in the United States. We have an anti-establishment clause that forbids us from paying taxes to a church that we don't belong to. That's a vastly different thing than saying, you know, we are a secular nation. Um, secular nations are those nations that forcibly remove religious expression from the public realm. For instance, France is a secular nation. My argument is that while secularization, by which I mean the process whereby political power rests in the hands of non-religious authorities, um, while that is obviously very important, secularism is not to maintain a democracy. What is necessary is a commitment to pluralism, a, a, uh, a commitment to the equality of all religious expressions and religious beliefs under the law, uh, a refusal to allow one particular faith to supersede others or to subsume others. That's what we have in the United States. That's why our democracy works so well. Um, and that, I think, is the model for a successful democratic formula that does not seek to remove religion from public life. So would you say there's also a broader definition of pluralism, which also means embracing the other and accepting? Yes, I think that's what pluralism means. That's why it's not about tolerance. It's about acceptance. It's about 
understanding that there are multifaceted ways of being and believing and recognizing that there is value in all of those different um, forms of belief and identity. So pluralism often gets confused with relativism. And by relativism, I mean a worldview that suggests all points of views are equally valid and none can be judged right or wrong. And to clarify, I make the distinction between judging a position as right or wrong and there being a right or wrong position itself. Relativism refers to the latter, which denies it exists. Could you explain where you stand and speak about this? Personally, I am a relativist. Personally, I do believe that there is an enormous value in um, multiple ways of thinking and being and existing, and that it's not necessarily the case that any one particular form of truth is more um, valuable than other forms of truth. But you don't have to be a relativist in order to be a pluralist. You could believe that your personal truth is the one that is most meaningful, is the one that provides the greatest clarity, um, while at the same time valuing other versions of truth, other people's truth. You know, we're talking about um, human emotions. We're not talking about facts here. And emotions are, by definition, purely subjective. Um, they're experiential. And so I think it would become very difficult for someone to simply deny someone else's emotional experience because it conflicts with one's own experience. Again, we're not talking about facts here. I'm not a relativist when it comes to facts. I'm a relativist when it comes to uh, the way that we experience emotional truths. So to continue, uh, the Pew Research Forum in 2016 cited on The Guardian from London reported, and I quote, six out of every 10 millennials get their political news on Facebook, making the 1.7 billion user social behemoth the largest millennial marketplace for news and ideas in the world. Facebook's ecosystem exists a warren of intellectual biomes created by users whose interest in interacting with opposing political views is nearly non-existent, to unquote. So today this phenomenon is even termed as a post-fact society where individuals not, not only feel entitled to their own opinions, but to their own facts. So therefore, how can and what advice can you provide for groups to reach individuals who are tucked away in their own echo chambers locked away from other perspectives. Yeah, by the way, this is why I kept saying that, you know, I'm not talking about relativism in terms of facts. I'm talking about it in terms of experience and emotional truths. Um, no, this is a, a terrible phenomenon. We all assumed when uh, the Internet and social media was first, that first came onto the scene, that what it would do is expand our horizons, give us uh, immediate access to new sources of knowledge and, and information, that it would remove um, the gatekeepers from, you know, giving us access to information, and that would allow us to, you know, be able to see positions from all points of view, and more importantly, often go straight to the source in order to get that information. 
And the exact opposite has happened. You know, we are now in a situation that, you know, my friend Eli Perizer refers to as, as the filter bubble, that we can now live our entire lives online without ever once coming across opinions or ideas that counteract the ones that we already hold. Um, that's a dangerous place to be. But the Internet is also an individualistic and uh, self-policing mechanism. In other words, it's no one's fault but yours. And no one can do anything but you yourself in expanding your horizons. Um, you know, there is no mechanism, certainly no technological mechanism, that would force a person to, uh, you know, read various conflicting opinions uh, about a particular topic and come to their own individual um, interpretation of it. It's really about the individual and the responsibility that individual has to make sure that they are not living in a filter bubble. But I don't see what it is that anyone else can do in order to force that upon people. So if we generally agree other opinions, views, and perspectives are important, can they be truly valuable if we don't simultaneously expand our understanding of pluralism that we spoke of earlier beyond notions of just embracing differences in race, culture, religion, ethnicity, but to also include intellectual diversity, that is a sincere respect for other positions and opinions, because without intellectual diversity, all is left is a bland, homogenous, perhaps even dogmatic intellectual landscape, devoid of opinion in any variety, in essence, an echo chamber. So we, we see a lack of intellectual pluralism when certain groups are broad-brushed as a monolith. One could even argue that most conflict and discord are due to a lack of intellectual pluralism or diversity, a lack of respect for other opinions and positions. In other words, the respect for disagreement, in essence, is an inescapable aspect of pluralism. Would you agree with this perspective and what can be done so everyone can be open and respectful to new and other ideas that oppose their worldview? Yeah, I certainly agree that intellectual um, pluralism is important and that we must, as thinking, as critical thinkers, be open to a, a diversity of opinions and ideas, even when it comes to some core fundamental beliefs that we may have. I will, however, say that to me, the problem that I see is less a lack of intellectual diversity and more a notion of, um, you know, what is sometimes being referred to colloquially as both sidesism. This is partly to do with the, the polarized rhetoric that we are facing in this country. It is partly to do with the way in which our media, particularly cable news, has become, uh, you know, less like news and more like a sportscast with two teams, both of which have, you know, fans and both of which have an equal um, right to, you know, quote-unquote winning. Um, and that has resulted in these absurd conversations that we are having as a nation about, you know, whether there is uh, both sides to the argument of 
say whether Nazis should be having an influence in the American government or whether blacks and Latinos and gays should be afforded the same human dignity as, um, you know, other people. You know, there isn't two sides to every argument. There isn't, you know, intellectual diversity to every argument. The planet is warming. That is a fact, and that human beings have a role in it. That is a fact. There isn't another side to that argument. Uh, you know, Islam is a religion, and it, you know, it is protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. There isn't another side to that argument. And sometimes, to me, the problem isn't so much that we are not willing to listen to other sides. The problem is, is that we pretend that sometimes that other sides are are equally valid, and it's just not the case. So now let me turn and ask about the future of religion and faith. Do you think the perception of religious people, of course, it might be worse for some faiths or better for others, will generally improve over time? I don't know if I would say that the um, the perception of religious people is going to improve because that perception is often privy to the most extreme voices. I mean, the reason that the perception of Americans towards Muslims is that, you know, they're violent terrorists is because that tends to be what they see in the news. The reason that non-religious people see, um, you know, right-wing Christians as, uh, you know, theocratic and autocratic and uh, desperate to uh, impose their religious values on everyone else is because that's what they see. Um, you know, on the news, that's, those are the voices that we hear most often, which is why, um, even among religious people, religion has become a kind of dirty word, if you will. You know, there's a reason why the fastest growing segment in American society is the non-affiliated, those individuals who do not necessarily refer to themselves as atheists, but also at the same time refuse to associate with any particular religion. Um, they're quote-unquote spiritual but not religious. When you begin to really crunch those numbers, what you see is that this is primarily a response to uh, the role that religion has played in fostering violence uh, abroad and at home, the role that religion has played in denying human rights and human dignity to minority groups in the United States, the way in which religion has been manipulated by politicians and political parties to advance non-religious causes. All of that has given religion, deservedly so, a bad name uh, for most people. And I don't see that perception changing. What I do see changing is religion itself. You know, religion is always in a constant state of evolution. It is constantly adapting to the realities, the changing realities of the world. Um, you know, and I think people have this impression that religion is somehow static or monolithic. And that, I think, is just an ignorant worldview. 
Um, religions have always managed to simply absorb new information, new truths, new realities um, into itself and keep going. When we discovered that the sun was not the center of the universe, I mean, when we discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe, it didn't do away with Christianity. Christians just simply accepted that truth, absorbed it into their religion, and moved on. If tomorrow aliens from Alpha Centauri land in uh, Central Park, that's not going to do away with religion. Religions will simply accept that fact, absorb it, and then move on. So I think what you're going to see is, is, a, is a religiosity that is continuing to evolve, continuing to adapt to scientific truths and knowledge, um, and, you know, continuing to address the changing needs of religious people. But I don't think the perception of religious people is necessarily going to change anytime soon. So on a shorter time scale, how do you think we would we will understand religion, say, perhaps in five to ten years or even ten to twenty years from now? You know, it's hard to say because in times of tremendous social or scientific progress, and I believe that we are in one of those times, we're in the middle of one of those times, often what happens is that you see a religious backlash to that progress. That backlash often takes the form of fundamentalism, which is not an independent phenomenon, but a reactionary phenomenon. It is a reaction to social, scientific uh, progress. There will always be people who feel left behind, and those people will often react, sometimes in violent ways. And so I think that in the next you know, five, ten years, you're going to continue to see a surge of extreme and fundamentalist expressions of religion as a result of dealing with the tremendous social changes that we have experienced over the last few decades. But I think that if you look 20, 30, 40 years into the future, then I think what you're going to see is the kind of accommodation that I was referring to earlier, accommodating the social and scientific realities we live in. That has been the nature of religion from its very beginning. React, and then it accommodates. It reacts, and then it accommodates. And finally, on your new book titled God, A Human History, tell us a little bit about it and how it's different than other books on the subject. Well, the book is about the way in which we have beginning of the concept of God. From the very moment the idea arose in human evolution, we have understand the divine, tried to make sense of the divine by essentially humanizing the divine, by implanting human emotions, human characteristics, human personalities, human traits, human weaknesses and strengths, virtues and vices upon God and form God into a divine version of ourselves. You can see this process throughout the history of religions and in all major religious traditions. 
to this day, whether we are believers or not, uh, whether we are aware of it or not, what the vast majority of us think about when we think about God is a divine version of ourselves. And this is dangerous. What we are essentially doing is foisting our human compulsions upon God and pretending that they are God. More than anything else explains why religion has been a force both for tremendous good and for unspeakable evil throughout humanity. In fact, everything that is good or bad about our religion is nothing more than a reflection of everything that is good or bad about us. Hating for is a different way of thinking about God, a way of dehumanizing God and casting God not as some kind of, you know, divine, divine personality with human foibles, but as a, a, a sort of a, a primal creative force in the universe that is in fact the universe. Um, and so book is uh, a history of the way that we have thought about God over the last half a million years, but it's also an appeal for a broader, more expansive, more pantheistic understanding of God, which I think will lead to greater peace uh, and prosperity, uh, in, in, um, you know, among religions and will also lead to a more mature, more satisfying spirituality for individuals. What do you hope the subject will accomplish in terms of increasing a better understanding of religion and even perhaps increasing the respect of religious people? I just want people to start to think about what they mean when they say God. We have so many fights and so many arguments about God. We have people who say they believe in God. We have people who say they don't believe in God. We have people who kill because of God and people who die because of their beliefs about God. I'll assume we're talking about the same thing when we say the word God, and we are not. And so a conversation, a global conversation, it is we even mean when we say the word God. And I think that if we start the conversation there, what we will discover is that we have a lot more in common with each other than we thought that we did. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host, and for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.